Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's the show, no worries, on point and on the podcast. Why is there so much secrecy when it comes to what our kids are learning and where education's headed for the future? We're going to look into the systemic wall of secrecy that keeps prying parents shielded from what we actually have a right to know when it comes to educating our kids. We'll talk about part of the collateral damage of COVID-19, which has, of course, been an explosion of mental health and suicide issues, but also this spike in opiate deaths no one is talking about because of COVID taking the attention. We'll also talk about a pretty big legal fail as one of the biggest cases on organized crime gets tossed out of the courts because of sloppy police work. Let's get talking. your point. You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to your That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. At point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. To keep fighting the spread of COVID-19, the city is extending the cancellation of in-person city-led and city-permitted outdoor major events from March 31st to July 1st, including in-person Canada Day parades, festivals, and events. Oh, look, are we heading into another summer of suckiness? Sure looks that way. And when is the best, you know, case scenario before it does not suck? Maybe September? So are you ready to live like this for yet another seven-ish months? I mean, you're good living with all these restrictions, you know, not knowing if your kids will go to summer camp or knowing if you can take that summer trip because uh, as you heard off the top of the show there with Mayor Tory, the city of Toronto has now killed this huge list of big, big summer events. So no pride. A bunch of marathons are canceled. Things like Jazz Festa, Canada Day festivities, North by Northeast. And this is, of course, a best case scenario. Because we should all well know now that the goalposts move very, very easily with these health experts. And uh, I don't know about you, but... I'm not okay living through yet another COVID summer because we should have vaccines. And uh, without them, this is what we uh, face. Dr. Tam saying yesterday that the restrictions will stay around until September. And, you know, I don't understand. Why do we settle with failure? Have we, have we gotten so many participation ribbons through our life that we as Canadians were just thankful that those in charge are trying their best? Oh, they're trying, you know, because we shouldn't be. And uh, the breaking news on Tiger Woods uh, on Tuesday certainly overshadowed Dr. Tam's comments. But she was saying, you know, she hopes that we can get back to some kind of normal by September. She can't guarantee it because, of course, that some kind of normal depends on a whole lot of fine print, like how bad the third wave is. But more importantly, if we can actually get vaccines into the arms. But when you go on their track record of both these health experts and our elected officials, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that September, I think, is a pipe dream because every best guess they have had since day one has been wrong, every single one. And the reality is, 
You know, no matter how much we sacrifice, and we have made enormous, enormous sacrifices, these experts have failed to deliver time and time again. And some, and for some reason, we just put up with it. You know, we're all in this together, eh? We've uh, allowed ourselves to be brainwashed by the spin doctors that their failures are, are just a part of the learning curve of COVID, of course. You know, we'll get through this. They've got our back. And um, I guess we've lived up to this notion spewed out by the prime minister that, you know, it's not about the starting line. It's about getting to the finish line. I don't, I don't know <laughs> why that is a good talking point. We've allowed ourselves to become a nation of Leaf fans, you know. We're always hopeful that we'll win. We just never do, right? By the time we get to the finish line, we are going to be limping across it alone. We're going to be left in the dust by countries all over the world who are actually winning and who are actually going to go and enjoy a COVID-free summer because they're not losers, because they didn't settle for the participation ribbon. I was talking to my sister uh, today, who I haven't seen in a year and a half, you know, we're hoping that maybe, maybe I can see my nieces in the summer. But of course, I don't know. I don't know if the, the borders will be open. But like all of you, haven't seen family in a long time. But she was telling me, oh, um, next week I'm going to get my vaccines. She's, her biggest challenge was she just couldn't figure out which one she wanted, the Moderna or Pfizer. And I'm just like, oh, my God, can you imagine the luxury? Can you imagine? But we did get a schedule for when we might get these things. And um, anyone under 60 is still months away, months and months away. So, you know, 80 years and up, hopefully, hopefully they will get their, their shots by the third week of March, 75 years and up, April, 70 years and up, May, and that keeps going, June for the 65-year-old plus crowd, and by July, maybe we'll get to the 60-year-old. And for the rest of us, I mean, if you're under 60, it is sometime after that. And uh, this is all based on the ifs, if Trudeau gets his great big vaccine portfolio delivered. And even General Hillier, who sp spoke today, he can't say if we'll be vaccinated by Labor Day because, as he said, all he has is the true talking point. We're going to take them at their word that the vaccines are going to arrive. Uh, I, I'd love to say, yeah, you know, by Labor Day weekend, we're going to have every single person in Ontario who is eligible and who wants a vaccine to have one. Uh, I'm a little bit reluctant to do that because it depends on the arrival of those vaccines. I say this, if the mm. vaccines arrive and the numbers required, we'll get them into the arms of the people of Ontario. Mm. Not really all that inspiring, you know. I mean, there's no question about it. We've got to get the elderly and the vulnerable done. Absolutely done first. But um, in my mind, they should have been done already. But that it's not going to happen until June, I think for a G7 nation is pathetic. I, mean, I haven't seen my mom in over 13 months. Well, it means she won't tell me her real age, but I do know she's under 80, but I also know she's over 75. So we're looking a little ways away before I get, I won't see her. Certainly we won't see them for Easter, but you know, that, that is what we're in. I don't know about you, but certainly we're all going through this. And what it also means is, you know, for a majority of this province, you know, those driving the workforce, those of you out there taking the risks on the front lines you know, kids and teens who have literally been robbed of childhoods. Really, two, two, two full summers robbed. Um, we're talking 11 million Ontarians will not get a shot for months because we're nowhere in the queue until at least July. And that has a cost. You know, the economy will stay shut down. 
uh, certainly can't plan for anything, can't hope for much. And a sobering poll came out today, and I think, and we'll talk about it a little bit later on the show, but I do think it speaks to the actual costs of COVID because the virus sucks up all the air in the room. It is blinding us. And these experts, you know, all the, all the time, they talk about, you know, these other casualties being caused, um, you know, by COVID. But what they don't talk about are the casualties, casualties being caused by their mistakes. You know, they don't talk about those who lose jobs those not getting diagnosed for things like missed illnesses, uh, cancer, heart disease, because people can't get doctor's appointments, uh, mental health suffering. And then there's this explosive opiate crisis that is going totally, completely ignored. So I think it is time that we admit we are choosing winners and losers in this country. And all we get every day are these reminders about dangers of COVID. You know, Dr. Davila comes out and she's so concerned. The most she's been concerned every day. I've and never yet, been as concerned as I am now. Now, I mean, she said that last week. I just wish I would hear that kind of concern for those being killed or destroyed by daily struggles, you know, and the health threats that are completely being ignored because apparently we can only focus on COVID. And so while Dr. Tam, you know, seemed pretty, pretty positive, you know, on Tuesday, she's hopeful September, we could see all these restrictions lifted. And I'm talking, what, seven, eight months more of this BS. I mean, that is no cause for celebration. If you ask me, it is a failure. It is a participation ribbon. And we should not wear that with a badge of honor. So let's raise the bar. Can we please stay with us on point? I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. The question is, you know, what do you actually know about your kid's education? You know, what are they learning? How is it being taught? And I think parents, and I certainly did, got a bit of an idea uh, during this hellish on learning chapel that we, chapter that we did online. I have to be honest, I saw a lot of focus on things like black history issues, which don't have an issue with it, but I would in this time certainly like teachers to be focusing on the real fundamentals of education. And in Ontario, we know that the unions have a huge hand in curriculum, even though it is not their concern and it should not have any hand in what is being taught. But there seems to be this wall of secrecy around kids' education in this country, be it what they're learning right now and even when it comes to future plans for where education's going. And from my perspective, we seem more focused on things like social justice issues and not the foundational tools kids are actually going to need so they can be prepared for the big old world. Paul Bennett is director of Schoolhouse Consulting. He joins us now with a newish segment that we'll be doing every other Wednesday called Education Watch. And Paul, it is good to have you. It's good to be with you, Alex. Looking forward to this series. Yeah, you've actually been writing about this issue of secrecy, which you feel is systemic in the public education. And I don't think a lot of parents know about that. What is so secretive that we aren't learning? Well, secrets are hard to fathom and hard to ferret out because by their very nature, they're designed to be concealed. And um, as a large bureaucracy, education, whether it be provincial or uh, district education, is in a sense a bureaucracy. So there are built-in uh, um, factors which contribute to secrecy and um, essentially denying access to information. So while we have laws which guarantee citizens freedom of information, much more emphasis is placed on the protection of privacy, especially in the education sector. 
So my uh, argument today will be, and this is for your listeners, will be that we need to take a closer look at our educational authorities and the practices they use to thwart um, investigations and to conceal information and to practice secrecy. And I've got a number of examples. Um, I would venture to say, uh, Alex, that um, there is a, an award that you may have heard of. It's a satirical award called mm. the Code of Silence Award <laughs> that's awarded yeah. every year, and it has been since 2001. And my view is more should go to education authorities, and all the scrutiny seems to be on provinces, municipalities, because that's where the education, that's where the uh, journalists tend to focus their energies. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of an oxymoron. We are talking about public education, and so there should be no secrecy in public education. Um, And yet, uh, you're right, we do have to kind of dig and find out what's going on. And and is it a specific area that you're talking about where secrecy is? Is it, um, you know, whether it's incidents in school? I mean, we just read an investigation by the Toronto Star last week about a number of teachers who had been, um, you know, violating uh, codes like um, sexual um, relationships with teachers or between teachers and students, and it took years for this to come out. We learned about that, but again, it took an investigation from a, a major Toronto paper to even get that kind of information, which, again, should be put out in the public domain, given it is a public education system. I did identify three issues or four issues that constantly come up. One is essentially learning time. Why is right. it being lost? How much? And what are the consequences? The second is student attendance. What's the rate of absenteeism? And how often are teachers absent because of the stresses of the job? A third thing is teacher discipline and misconduct. And Mm -hmm. what's the big cloak of secrecy around that? And I I would argue a a final uh, one and and a a significant one is um, curriculum changes. What are the reasons that there's so much opposition to certain changes and so much support for others? And so why has this, do you blame the fact that it's become such a bloated and huge um, bureaucracy supported by a very, very powerful public union that we have come to this point? It's a significant factor, and you wouldn't want to discount that. But most of the cases that I tend to uncover, and this is covering the country and doing investigations all over the place, um, amount to something, uh, I would say a lesser offense, which is diversionary activities designed to conceal information and prevent further discussion of them in the public domain. And there's even a phrase that's, that's often used to describe this, and I'm going to go to a, a scholar, in, uh, believe it or not, in uh, Scotland, who is famous for this. Her name is Eugenie Samier, and she discusses the, um, the hidden face of power And she advises us to look for ingrained bureaucratic behaviors known as avoidance activities, which are aimed at curtailing all efforts at securing more open government and Mm -hmm. limiting public discourse to issues which are deemed safe and do not challenge the existing structures of power and organizations, one of which, of course, is the close and evolving relationship of teachers' unions with governments of whatever form. 
Right. In other words, I mean, well, look, they're a huge, as you well know, a huge voting block, and whoever gets the public sector teaching unions has a very good chance of forming power, certainly in the province of Ontario. So they do wield a lot of power. But what are what is, let's say, your biggest concern moving forward when it comes to education and where, you know, students really and parents are being shortchanged? I think there are three issues that I wanted to bring to the fore today and, and bring on the table. It's what's not being discussed what's being brought forward, and how we need to be more um, vigilant in watching over education. And that's really the focus of our series, which is Education Watch. So first of all, let's, let's just take three examples. Going back to 2015, five years ago, we needed a more thorough investigation of the secret payments to the teachers' unions so that they would participate in the bargaining. What we had to find out is through a freedom of information request and and information that was released, we had to find out that between 2008 and 2018, um, during the um, uh, McGuinty and Kathleen Wynne government, there was about $3.7 million paid to the teachers' unions simply for showing up to participate in negotiations. Most people would say that's highly unusual. It's totally unacceptable. And so you could argue that they were paying off the unions to win political points and score support from 200,000 teachers and education workers in Ontario. A second issue that went uncovered, and it's in your viewing audience, your listening audience, is the departure of John Malloy as the director of the largest school board in Canada, the fourth largest in uh, the entire uh, North America, when he was faced with mounting criticisms over the disaster of online home learning, he left. He left to go to a very small school board in California. And the only person asked for comment was Dr. Charles Pascal, who was one of his biggest supporters. There was no investigation. There was no careful and close scrutiny as to whether, why, someone regarded as the leader of education in his his jurisdiction left in the middle of the pandemic and went to California. I'll tell you, I'll stop you there. Like, it's so secret. I didn't even actually know. I mean, that's, uh, and I'm a, I'm someone who's pretty in tune with education, but the fact that this is something that I'm learning, this is something that has clearly been kept very quiet. And the third example, and the one that the Toronto Star broadcast was the secret Mm -hmm. plans to introduce e-learning for everyone by 2024. So the Toronto Star and uh, all of its, uh, I would say, acolytes who support the Toronto Star, very closely aligned with the teachers' unions, virtually everything that the teachers' unions do is actually published in the Toronto Star. So you really do, reading the Toronto Star, you have a pretty good idea of what the teachers' unions consider to be the important issues worth discussing in Ontario. Well, uh, you know, it kind of, you know, and we don't nearly have enough time to talk about it, but it certainly shows how important it is to have local news coverage so that, you know, we can do these access to information, um, you know, searches, because it's really the only way we find out, because it's not being, of course, put forward broadly. Paul, uh, I'm up against the clock on this, but we'll certainly continue talking about it. But I appreciate it. It certainly gives us food for thought. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to future conversations in our series. 
Absolutely. That is Paul Bennett, uh, Director of Schoolhouse Consulting, and will continue uh, doing this uh, because it is not an issue that gets covered widely because simply COVID is sucking up all the oxygen in the room, but certainly worth putting a focus on. Stay with us on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. The pandemic has occupied so much of the mental, emotional, and intellectual bandwidth of Canadians. And what that has meant is that issues that we spend a lot of time talking about, such as opioid dependency and the opioid crisis, have really fallen down the list of priorities. All right, that is the voice of Sashi Curl of Angus Reid, who looked into these record high opiate deaths and the fact that they've fallen off the radar. And we call this collateral damage of COVID, but I think it really diminishes what the term really means because the collateral damage of this pandemic is the pain and suffering of those not getting surgeries or diagnoses for other illnesses, uh, mental health issues, things like suicides that have skyrocketed. And of course, now this shadow pandemic Uh, The country's opiate crisis is completely being ignored. And Angus Reid, as they dove into the number, reveals that Canadians do know that there's a worsening crisis, but we seem to care less about this than we do the virus. So we've basically become okay, I guess, with picking winners and losers. Jeremy Devine is a psychiatric resident at McMaster University, specializing in the area of addiction and drug policy. It is good to have you back on the show. Thanks, Alex. Good to be here. Um, What do you make of these numbers? I mean, there are so many um, casualties outside of COVID that are going on. They're not getting any focus as if we kind of, as I say, we seem okay with picking winners and losers. It's a real shame. Uh, When I kind of gaze into my crystal ball, I can see an end for the pandemic sort of in, in, in the not too distant future. When I look at the opioid epidemic, on the other hand, and, and where we're headed with that, I don't see an end, really. Things have been getting worse and worse. Uh, and, and it's a real shame that, that public interest has kind of fallen in, in that, as indicated by this recent poll. Yeah, seven in 10 Canadians know that the, the epidemic of opiate uh, deaths are worse or addictions. Uh, we just don't think about it as much. I was actually surprised by this. 42% per, uh, you know, of Canadians polled before the pandemic were really knowledgeable about this issue. That number's plummeted now to 16. And and it's not just a BC problem. We're seeing this in cities right across the country. Right. And uh, it's, you know, I've heard the term sort of a a dual pandemic that that Mm -hmm. both of them interact and feed into each other. Uh, And and, uh, it's it's a very, very challenging problem. And and it's a shame because with with the opioid epidemic, as I'm I'm sure you, you, you previously discussed, cases are skyrocketing. We had more opioid overdose deaths in 2020 than in any year in, in recent history. Uh, so it's, it's just a really, really unfortunate problem. Yeah, I mean, well, it is a tragedy in itself. I mean, we focus so much on those dying of COVID. Um, and then, you know, we don't give a lot of thought to those who are being either uh, hooked into this horrific addiction and illness or killed by it. And, and, you know, I was reading an article over the weekend. Um, there was an obituary of a 16 year old boy whose parents went public with the reason he died. And he had had some kind of medical issue and got addicted to opiates and he's now dead. Uh, mm-hmm. And they broke their silence because they want people to understand, you know, it's not just some homeless person in the street or some, you know, you know, it's not just this, I think, um, 
we have like a profile of who we think this is, but it is affecting, you know, everybody from mothers to business people to 16 year old kids. That's absolutely correct. And it, it's a shame because of course we need to address the, the COVID pandemic, but, but this overshadows the, the ongoing opioid epidemic. And it's, it's frustrating because it, it detracts from a lot of work that's needed to reform Canada's addiction treatment system. Mm -hmm. uh, as it stands right now, we really do not have a functioning addiction treatment system. It, yeah. If I can be frank, Alex, a yeah. lot of our modern drug policy and, and recent interventions, they're directed more by activism and these ideologues mm -hmm. rather than um, broadly looking at the the, the problem. They, they really specialize in, in that sort of small homeless population. And I think that we forget about everyone else who is impacted, who isn't necessarily marginalized or, or homeless. Not to say that they don't need care, but we're not taking a very broad perspective on the issue, in, in my opinion. Right. I did find that interesting, though, when you look at the numbers of this survey, it also found that a majority of people actually support what you're talking about, which would be a compulsory treatment for people um, caught in these addictions instead of supervised injection sites, which is always the kind of popular talking point we hear. I was struck by that number that almost 90 percent of Canadians polled uh, support mandatory treatment. And, and what that shows me is that there's a real disconnect between what the federal government is sort of implementing and what people, Canadians want for those who struggle with addiction. And uh, I'll mm -hmm. point out also what the drug users themselves want. Uh, everyone who struggles with addiction at one point does want treatment. They want to get off the substances. Mm -hmm. Yet, because our drug policy is so dominated by activism, what we get are ludicrous, in my opinion, interventions such as safe supply which simply give more and more opioids with that don't really treat anything. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a big problem. Well, it almost keeps the person jailed in their addiction. It doesn't right. offer the hope. It just offers them another day uh, to live. But we also, and have been hearing it more and more, is why aren't we just decriminalizing these drugs as if that is the answer? Where do you stand on that? That's a very, very tricky issue. Um, I'll say that in areas where the opioid addiction is currently the worst, namely in BC, there already exists a kind of de facto decriminalization. Uh, police have been very clear that they don't arrest people who have simple drug possession. Uh, you generally only get into trouble with the law if you're sort of committing crimes as a consequence of, of the addiction. So what I'm saying is, in a way, we have decriminalization in BC, and yet it has not been at all a panacea. Uh, in fact, well, I, I wouldn't say things have, it's really worsened it, but it hasn't really made a big difference. So I'm a little ambivalent about the idea of decriminalization. I don't think it'd be harmful, but it's not, I don't really see it being helpful by itself alone. You know, there have been hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars. I've actually lost track of all the announcements that have been made at the provincial and federal level about, um, you know, mental illness supports. And it sounds like a lot is being done. I think the, the, the if I don't understand where the programs are, uh, someone in crisis, I think, would have a really tough time navigating what is available now. And we have so many cases now, um, and I'm sure you can talk to it. I'm sure you're seeing it of people who were perfectly well before this pandemic only to succumb to things like anxiety or maybe depression or stress from whatever, be it whether they're getting sick from the illness or scared of it or they've lost a job, or there's financial problems. There are so many issues going on now with mental health. Um, have the changes 
announced by all these levels of government made it better? Or is it just a big pot of money and a patchwork still? Oh, it's, it's such an interesting problem. I mean, I, I think to stay on the, the topic of opioid addiction as it relates to the, the crisis, uh, there, there was a very unfortunate time, um, which accounts, I think, for, for why there was a, a spike in overdose deaths in 2020, where CERB was being distributed right. very liberally with very little oversight to almost anyone who applied. And tragically, what ended up happening was that many people who struggle with active addiction did get enrolled in CERB. And suddenly they have $2,000 checks coming every month. And it's, it's to be expected that when you struggle with drug addiction and you're handed quite a lot of money, it goes to drugs. And uh, that was very clearly noted as a reason for why there was a spike in opioid overdose deaths. Uh, wow. And yet we don't talk a lot about that, but it's a prime example of how you simply can't just throw money at the problem. In fact, that, that made it worse in many ways. We, we, in some ways, enabled opioid overdose deaths. Mm, interesting. And, you know, COVID will go away, uh, but these mental health issues uh, and addictions are not going to go away. Have you been able to gather any data or have any forethought on what we're looking at once we get out of the, the haze of this virus? Well, like I, like I said earlier, um, as, as I can see sort of eventual endpoint of the, of the COVID pandemic, uh, I, I don't really see it for the opioid epidemic, at least in the near future. Uh, we've, we've put for instance, the federal government so far has spent uh, $44 million on safe supply interventions, which mm-hmm. simply supply opioids to people with an opioid addiction. And that isn't sort of meaningful treatment that really just glazes over the problem. So yeah. I, I guess what I'm saying is, is if we continue to supply, if this is where our money is going, I don't think that this is really going to get us out of it, even post pandemic. No. And do you have any kind of information or data as to how a program could be built to actually get people the help they need? Because right now you you have to have money and you have to also go on a waiting list. So if someone wants to get clean and get healthy, um, you know, there's such a a wall between that um, and so many, um, you know, so much red tape and costs that a lot of people just they either die or they just never get help. Exactly. And uh, there's so much room for reform for our current addiction treatment system. I work in the emergency department and I frequently encounter patients who have landed there as a consequence of their drug use. And sometimes it's a turning point for people. And yet when we connect them with the services that they want, which is frequently at that time, abstinence and recovery from drug addiction, as you said, they go on these waiting lists, which are obscure and which you have to wait Mm -hmm. for months and months. And sometimes the resolve to change your life, it diminishes. And yet, again, I come back to this, we haven't addressed that. That, doesn't, that isn't as, as sexy, frankly, as safe supply or these more radical supervised injection sites. Uh, we, we've sort of neglected that, which is a real shame because that's what gets people better, working on them, rehab. Uh, very frustrating. Well, at least the conversation is being had by you, and I suspect clearly by the polling. A lot of other Canadians also want to have this conversation. So we will talk again. Jeremy, I appreciate your time on this. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Take care. Jeremy Devine, who uh, specializes in this particular area of addiction and drug policy and uh, doesn't follow the popular narrative. And and again, clearly by the polling, there is a narrative that's not being talked about. Investigators targeted 11 cafes, which generated much of the wealth for the Figlu Many Crime Group. A large portion of this income stems from the use of video gaming machines you see in front of you. 
and the loans made to patrons to keep them gambling, regardless of the amount of debt that they'd incurred. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. This is a case involving uh, involved 500 cops, took down one of the largest anti-mafia operations in York Region's history. And what you were hearing there was what we learned back in 2019, and that's when cops rolled out this huge show-and-tell of just millions, millions in cash. There were 27 homes, five Ferraris, and hundreds of bank accounts. It was dubbed Project Syndicato. And 15 people were charged with some pretty serious allegations, things like uh, illegal gambling, loan sharking, and laundering, which was alleged to have been done through regular visits to legal government-run casinos. And today, we learned that the case um, that cops called one of the biggest organized crime busts in York Region has completely fallen apart and now been tossed out of court. Steve Mantelsky is a criminal psychology professor over at Mohawk College, also author of the new book, Undercover. Undercover or, un- or Undercovered? Undercover. Undercover. What's the title? <laughs> there you go. There we go. I knew it was a brain fart there. Good to have you there, Stephen. Uh, what was your... Um, you, well, of course I'll have you back because this is your area of expertise. In, in particular, you wrote about this particular group um, uh, in your Blue Line magazine. Uh, how, how big of a failure is this? Well, you know, when you get into these types of investigations, like uh, Wiretap Part 6 uh, intercepted communication investigations like this one, um, especially when you encroach into the area of lawyer client privilege communications like this is the highest Mm. threshold for any type of investigation because when you everybody has a reasonable expectation of privacy so when you look at these criminal investigations um you uh, and investigators the affiant is a name for the warrant writer they have to um in a full frank and fair and very detailed document you know convince a judge he or she that you know the police uh can can legally intercept these private communications. So for, you know, an investigation, Sindatico is, you know, an Italian term for association and union. And this was uh, over a year collaboration with York Police, uh, Canada Revenue Agency, and Italian authorities. It wasn't parallel. It was an intelligence sharing um, investigation with the authorities in Italy. So for this all to be, um, you know, the charges stayed, it's, it's surprising, but it's not because defense lawyers, this is the first thing they are going mm-hmm. to target, it's especially if there is an issue um, of such a high caliber nature of, of a breach of a lawyer-client privilege. Right, which would speak then to why, you know, why were they so careless or what went wrong, but nonetheless, it, it was enough that it got these charges tossed out and the case completely falls apart. You've written about this. This is the Figliomini crime group. Um, who are they and, and what was the, um, you know, the implication of having them busted down and, and what does this mean to the organized crime world when we're talking about Ontario or Canada for that matter? Yeah, you know, when you look back between 2016 and 2017, Alex, that's when the GTA, Southern Ontario, there were dozens of homicides, attempt homicides, fire bombings, cafe fires, drive-by shootings, and this was all attributable attributable, sorry, to mm-hmm. the traditional organized crime violence in the GTA, specifically with the amount of money that gambling brings in. So when you look at the Andragata, which is the Calabrian faction of the Italian mafia, um, their base is in Calabria, Italy, and that is where the epicenter is. But they have 
cells and tentacles all over the world. And one of those main areas is the city of Toronto, uh, North mm. Toronto, up in York Region. And when you just take these rockets, specifically gambling on their own, Alex, between, you know, in the back of cafes, in poker houses, and that would be even more uh, lucrative, online gambling, they're making millions and millions and millions of dollars. And we're not even talking about drug trafficking or any of the other rackets that are involved in. So this was the the main reason, um, you know, a lot of the violence that we saw in the greater Toronto area in southern Ontario was directly attributable to that the, the power struggles over the territories that the mob controlled that were making so much money for them. And there's a there's so much organized crime uh, in this country, certainly in Ontario. I mean, this country is flooded with uh, dirty money that's come in. Of course, it started in B.C. and then flooded away the country. And again, getting one of these types of organizations um, taken down is hundreds of hours. And, and this was not a short investigation. And so when you see it fall apart, it's not like they can just pick up and start yet another project uh, and start doing it again. Uh, so what? where does this go from here? Well, you know, when, when charges are stayed, I mean, it's it's pretty telling when they use the word unlawful. I'm not privy. I'm not sure exactly what transpired. Um, but for the Crown to stay the charges, I think it's pretty significant. Um, they do still have technically uh, a year to, to lay additional charges or bring those charges back. But it has to be uh, under the premise of the foundation of new evidence that's garnered. Right. And when you look at these investigations, it's not just... You know, the, the, the police hours that are put in this, there are, are hundreds and thousands of hours of civilian uh, people that are part of these investigations, too. Um, when you're, they call it, you know, live on the wires uh, with these wiretap communications, all that information has to be, sometimes it has to be uh, transcribed and listened to live. Other times it all has to be transcribed. So that's just one part of it. Um, it's So these Part 6 investigations are... The, the top echelon, like when you look at mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the, the Vito Rizzuto crime family in Montreal, there was no coincidence that mob boss Vito Rizzuto, his son and daughter, were both attorneys. And he used that to his advantage. And he would hold uh, up a lot of his, his um, meetings with different criminal associates in the, law, in the law offices of his son and daughter because they had that law- lawyer-client privilege. And... That threshold, you know, to convince a judge to wiretap a lawyer's office or otherwise, I mean, that is really the highest threshold of, you know, invading and intercepting that private communication, especially with that privilege there. Okay, I don't have a lot of time because I'm running up against the wall and I could go on for a long, long time. But uh, now what happens? Do you see a jostling for territory? Uh, is it business as usual? What happens from here in the game of organized crime around uh, this particular region? Well, with any investigation, Alex, you know, organized crime, whether it goes to court, whether there's an acquittal, whether there's convictions, you know, the police, the authorities have to provide disclosure. They call it the three Fs, full, frank, mm-hmm. and fair. And regardless of the outcome, you know, organized crime learns about some of these investigative techniques. But at the end of the day, you know, there was a ton of intelligence garnered, but there was also on the flip side, you know, it was a very enduring investigation that cost a lot of money, too. Um, So I think it's almost, you know, time will tell. Will the charges be brought back? It's possible. But is it probable, you know, in the next year uh, or less will be the ultimate, you know, answer to that question.
Stay tuned. Stephen, I appreciate your um, insight into this uh, issue because I know you follow it closely, so I appreciate your time. Thanks again, Alex. Stephen Metalski joining us, and of course, he has just written a fascinating book called Undercover, and it's... Uh, Kind of gives you the background scenes as to what goes into investigations like this, but uh, certainly worth a look. Um, big case, though. Oof. You're on point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. You, of course, can catch us live Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio.